0: Hi and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. This is episode 99 with Andrew Chow. We're carrying on with the Hardware Wallet interview series. But first, let me introduce the sponsors of the podcast. Over my years in Bitcoin, I've been impressed with the way Kraken operate. They have a very strong focus on security and acting ethically in the space under Jesse Powell's leadership. They're one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges, and they're consistently rated the best with a high quality platform offering the best liquidity in the industry. They've got high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support, and on the institutional and business solution side, they're very popular with institutions too. They're providing the best-in-class accounting, reconciliation, and reporting services for cryptocurrency hedge funds, asset managers, and fund administrators. Don't forget, there's a Kraken OTC desk. Kraken offer five fiat currencies, and they also offer margin and futures trading. To learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next, look into unchained capital. These guys are doing Bitcoin financial services and they're also offering a two-of-three keys multi-signature vault product. So you can use Trezor or Ledger wallets and this helps you maintain control because you still hold two of the keys and you're reducing that single point of failure risk. And at the same time, it's protecting you against things like the proverbial $5 wrench attack because your keys are distributed. It's really easy to set up as well. And if you do, you get three free months of access to Safe Dinamoose's Bitcoin Standard Research Bulletin. Don't forget, Unchained also offer Bitcoin collateralized loans so you can get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins. They're stored in what's called collaborative custody. So if you want to learn more and sign up, go to the Unchained Capital link in the show notes. Alright, so carrying on with the Hardware Wallet interview series with Andrew Chow. Andrew is a Bitcoin Core developer working at Blockstream, and he's working on some really fascinating stuff. Hardware Wallet Interface, HWI, and PSBT, Partially Signed Bitcoin Transactions. So in this episode we talk about some of the benefits of these technologies and how hwi can enable us to use our hardware worlds directly with bitcoin core which might make it a bit easier and also psbt's will be important coming in the future because they will help us with things like coin joins and with multi-signature so definitely try to pay attention this episode is a little bit technical so bear with me I I do my best to try and clarify for the newbie listeners but just fair warning also there was a slight audio problem just on Andrew's side just for five or ten seconds just warning you I I did what I could but that's all there was Um, but otherwise it's a very enjoyable discussion and I'm sure you guys will learn a lot from it as well so here's the interview Andrew welcome to the show thanks for having me So, Andrew, I know uh, you've been doing a lot of work recently on things like HWI and PSBT and so on. Uh, But uh, first, let's uh, hear a little bit about you. I know you've uh, got a bit of a history with Bitcoin development. Tell us, how did you get into it and how did you get started with development?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm a Bitcoin Core contributor and I've been working on this uh, side project for Core called HWI, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, I got into developing Bitcoin like three or four years ago uh, just as something to do in my spare time while I was in high school and uh, got a lot more involved from there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So now you're working full-time as well on Bitcoin?
1: Yes. So right now I'm uh, at Blockstream and I'm working full-time on Bitcoin Core and other things and other blockstream things too.
0: Nice. That's awesome. Let's get into HWI. I'd love to hear a little bit of the story behind it. Why did you develop HWI? So in
1: uh twenty seventeen, I was an intern at Blockstream. And at that time I had also gotten a hardware wallet. And naturally, you know, have a hardware wallet, I want to use it. Uh Well, I found out that I couldn't use it with core and I actually couldn't use it with any full node that I ran myself. Like, like I eventually did get, uh, Electrum X running on a server and then having Electrum connect to that. But I didn't really like this thing. And you know, your average person isn't going to be able to do this. So, uh, I talked to my mentor, which was Peter Walla and we're talking about it and about what uh, would be required to get Harbor Wallet support into Core. And basically we came up with uh, that we needed some driver, something, some program that had all the drivers to talk to a Harbor Wallet that Core would call out to or connect to uh, and send data. And then there, we would have to have some API or data format that Core could send to the drivers in order to Communicate. And so, if you see where this is going, PSBT became that data format. That's how we're getting data from core to the driver, and HWI became the
0: driver. Got it. So, let's just sorry, I want to take it back one step just to make sure, just for the listeners who are not as advanced. Let's just, I guess, at a more basic level, why is it a good idea to connect your hardware wallet uh, to? you know, your own full node instead of trusting somebody else's node or giving up the da- giving up your privacy to somebody else's server?
1: Well, so there's the obvious privacy thing. Uh, you know, you're not sending all of your addresses to someone else who can do whatever they want, like tracking or something with that information. Uh, when you use your own full node, it's just coming from the local blockchain data that your node has. And there's also you know, a bit of security when you have a full node, you're not trusting someone else to be providing you the correct transactions and the correct blockchain and all that stuff. So it's just better uh, security and privacy wise to be running your own full node and hardware wallets are a better way to store your keys and you kind of want to combine them.
0: Excellent. And so I guess before HWI, what were the main options available to people? I guess the option was either call use, say, a Trezor or Ledger, the web interface, or you had the option of using Electrum public server, which is, again, calling out to all those public servers and giving off your own data. And then you mentioned Electrum X, and I think the other ones are Electrum personal server by Chris Belcher, and also uh, I think there's Electrum Rust server. Do you want to just talk a little bit about some of those options? So at the time I started working on this, uh, the...
1: As far as I can tell, the only third-party software that really had hardware wallet support, like decently, was Electrum. And Electrum is a SPV wallet. It's not a full node. So it calls out to these Electrum servers, which provide its data. And it's like kind of decentralized. The servers aren't run by Electrum. They're run by anyone. Uh, and the Electrum wallet will connect to multiple of these servers. But it's still SPV. They can attack you. They can be DDoS, like many have been. And so if you if you want to have better privacy and security with Electrum, you should run your own Electrum server. Uh, the common software for that is Electrum X. And so that's what I was running um, when I did my original setup with Electrum and Electrum X. Uh, at the time, Electrum personal server didn't exist yet. I don't, th- I don't think it existed yet. Uh, Belcher hadn't written that. And the rusts, the Electrum rust server, I actually didn't hear about until like several months later. So I, I don't know anything about that one, but, uh, uh all I remember is, as you know, Google elect setting up your own Electrum server and it was just run Electrum X, uh, Because the original Electrum server was too old and non-performant that it couldn't actually catch up to the blockchain.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. So, basically, most of the ones that you are calling out to are Electrum X servers, whether that's your own personal one or that's like, you know, blockchain spy companies who are running (laughs) these. Yeah, uh... most people
1: run Electrum X. It's like the, the most widely used and most supported. And it's pretty easy to set up. So, that's what I was using. For, for the hardware wallet stuff. And, you know, you have to run two different software and you have to have a server and stuff. It's kind of annoying.
0: Yeah, I see. Yeah, it's a little bit finicky. And so the idea then was HWI would be this, by on working by default if it's, you know, if it's eventually, if it does eventually get merged into Bitcoin Core, then it would be a very more, it would be a more simple process for the user to just, okay, double click, install. And sort of off you yeah. go. Is that is that is that the hope?
1: So the idea is that HWI will be packaged with Bitcoin Core. When you do a hard, when you do anything that requires a hardware wallet, Core will call out to HWI, and HWI will do something and return results back to Core. And it all happens in background. The user doesn't notice. It's it would be the same as if we just just implemented the drivers directly into Core itself, uh, which we don't want to do for security reasons hardware wallets are all over USB and the USB driver stack is really big and is just a major um attack surface so we don't want to have that in core itself in case you know someone isn't using hardware wallets they don't need it but there's this huge vulnerability somewhere in the USB stack and now they're vulnerable to it we don't want that uh by having the separate program, we completely avoid this issue because it's only active when you're act- actively using your hardware wallet.
0: That's essentially what HWI enables. It enables people to use their Trezor or their Ledger or whatever hardware wallet or cold card with, directly with Bitcoin Core. So I think we should unpack that a little bit and start to talk about some of the pieces that make HWI possible. Can you give us a bit of an overview on that? So there's
1: three-ish components. There's the like actual drivers and talking to the device itself. Then there's the API wrapper around that. And then we have PSBT. So the, the drivers part, that's all like, for the most part, that's actually provided by the hardware wallet vendors. Uh, they all have Python libraries and HWIs are in in Python, so I just pulled in their Python code, and now I can talk to all their devices without having to really truly dive deep into everything that I have to do to talk to the hardware wallet. Because if I had to do that, I probably wouldn't have done it. It's just way too much work. Um, and this also lets me support a bunch of different things. You know, uh, we can just add another driver in later for some other device. And so then the the actual HWI part is the wrapper around that. It's just the calling the drivers when necessary, calling the correct APIs and taking in the PSPT or other stuff from the command line and converting it into the right things that uh, every device-specific driver can use because they're all different. They all have their own APIs and stuff. HWI is just providing a single unified API to connect to all the devices.
0: And then we have- One f- API to roll them all.
1: Yeah. The the nice thing actually is, uh, because HWI will be a separate program, if someone doesn't, if HWI doesn't support a hardware wallet, the vendor can actually just go and write their own version of HWI with support for their hardware wallet, have the same API, and now people can- Drop in, replace that, and it'll, it'll work with that new hardware wallet. And and then I won't have to do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. And so the last layer is PSPT, which is just to hold all the transaction data itself uh, and be able to send it from core to HWI and even to other clients because uh, it's designed to be fairly generic. So it has all of the information where it will have all of the information that you would need to sign and then create the final transaction that will be broadcast to the network.
0: Got it. So let's let's unpack PSBT a little bit. So for the listeners, that is partially signed Bitcoin transactions. So Andrew, can you give us some overview on that and why was that necessary?
1: So this is necessary because when you want to sign a transaction, you need a lot more than just the transaction that you're signing. Uh, so you need, for example, for a transaction that spends like a P2SH script, like multi-sig, you need to know the script that, that you're going to put in that final transaction. And if you don't already know it, the transaction that you're signing isn't going to have it for you. So for, Hardware wallets, they don't know what this is. You have to tell it to them. And like same with offline signers, they have to be told what the script that they're going to be signing is. So through PSBT, we can package, you know, this is the transaction we're signing and here's a script that you need in order to sign it. Package them all together. So it's now one large data blob that we can send off instead of having to have multiple pieces that need to be sent so if you if you look at um, Bitcoin core's sign raw transaction thing it's if Bitcoin core doesn't know the scripts uh, the API is awful to use <laughs> it's <laughs> Json and then you have to like Json itself is annoying uh, to make sure you get all the brackets and quotes correct and it's really easy to screw up and it's also not super universal the the raw transaction format itself isn't the same in electrum or like armory uh all three of them have different transaction formats for stuff that aren't signed yet for transactions that haven't been signed yet and they're all incompatible with each other so if you want to also use like say, do a multisig between core and Electrum, because you're paranoid, uh, you're gonna have a hard time making sure that both core and Electrum can sign the transaction, because they don't share the same format. And the idea behind, like having a bip behind PSBT is that people actually use it. And now we can have these different clients be able to sign transactions with each other.
0: Got it. So look, let me just try and break a little bit of that down and make sure my understanding is correct as well. So what we're talking about here is hardware wallets are in some sense, you know, they're quote unquote dumb. They don't, they're don't, they not connected to the network, so they don't know some of what's going on. And part of the complexity of what's going on is when you spend a Bitcoin transaction, every transaction has certain inputs that go into the outputs. And in order to unlock, if you will, or be able to spend those inputs you need to satisfy the encumbrance or the locking script placed upon that input and that's what you're getting out there as I understand mm-hmm. with the signature and basically the device which holds the private keys to be able to sign the uh, to sign that it doesn't know what script type and that's what you're getting out there that this HWI and sorry the PSBT rather is a way is like a format for different bitcoin software to interact with the hardware wallet and tell the hardware wallet hey i hey my trezo i need you to sign x y and z and it is this type of script and i need this kind of uh, you know these are the addresses that uh, you know i need you to um spend into does that is that yeah uh, more or less right yeah
1: yeah so the and uh hardware wallets actually need to know even more than just the scripts um like so the script is actually it's necessary in signing because it's signed it is actually signed over that's part of the message that is signed um but also a hardware wallet needs to know what to sign with because it doesn't the hardware wallet isn't going to store every single possible key it could generate that would be something out an order of like billions or trillions of keys and they just don't have the memory for that uh, instead you need to tell it like sign with the key at the derivation path m44 something something uh and so PSPT has another field that says you know this pub key is derived at this derivation path so now hwi or something else can go tell the hardware wallet hey go sign with this derivation path so it has that too which is like you know you don't really need this in order to sign uh hardware wallets really do need this in order to sign So, like other other software like core actually just completely ignores this field uh because it stores keys locally and it'll just look them up if it if it can it doesn't derive keys on uh as it signs
0: okay got it so let's try and break this down a little bit as well so This is getting into this concept of derivation paths. Now, my understanding on this, and again, correct me if I'm (laughs) explaining any of this wrong. It's a little bit technical, so I might fluff this part. But my understanding here is you got BIP32. That is known as hierarchical deterministic wallets. And so the idea is you take a seed and that seed is used to generate what we call a master private key, right? Like your XPRIVE. And that master private key can in turn be used to generate child keys and they are like a child private key to underneath sitting in that tree underneath your master private key mm-hmm. and then under that child private key you have leaves, and those leaves are what can be used to make addresses right um not quite so you have the
1: master private key uh, and that can generate child private keys but then the child private key is also another master private key And so it can generate its own child private keys. And this just goes ad infinitum. Uh, You just keep going down as far as you want. And so each level is like a different step in the derivation path. So if you see like M slash 44, that means that master key M uh, and you derive the 44th child. And that's the key at uh, at M slash 44. And you have like another slash zero. Now under the 44th child key you now derive the zeroth like its zeroth child key and just keep going down like that that's how the derivation paths work
0: Got the it. indexes okay. are
1: the indexes are a bit weird and it's just part of the derivation algorithm uh it only makes sense if you're reading it
0: right i see so could you help break this down that down for us a little bit so you might have your master private private key or a master public key, right? And if you don't want to give off the private key for it. And then, so you kind of, you need the XPUB and the derivation path to know, you know, because you might have split accounts under sitting underneath that master key. And then, so is that where the, like you said, M slash 44 slash zero slash zero, can you just help outline what are those numbers and what do they mean? So it's like that one of them is the account number and one of them is the...
1: Well, so that's like, Part of bit 44 which i don't actually totally remember um and that's kind of a it's kind of a someone defined these things but they don't they're not part of hierarchical whatever bit 32 itself um, yeah got it uh bit 32 is just how you go from a master key to a child key and then uh just for simplicity instead of going directly like you can only have a, a single line of keys it's, a, it's just a tree, and we stick an index somewhere in that derivation algorithm, and that's what we mean by, like, zeroth, or first, second, third, 44th key, that kind of thing. So there's just the term I, and that is the index, and you just re- replace that with whatever index you're using. So BIP44 defines derivation paths in a specific pattern, and a lot of wallets use this, but it doesn't totally make sense. Um, so at a, I believe it goes like four or five levels. Uh, so you have the first one, M slash 44. So the 44 is the purpose. And that's some something that is predefined. Uh, there's a list on Satoshi Labs uh, GitHub somewhere that just lists out a ton of different purposes Uh, and that's what this first index under the bit44 scheme should be and then there's account something else maybe that's backwards uh, which are just used for like internally you can like change those and get a different account like a different derivation path tree uh, and get different addresses and then the, at the end, there is change. Uh, you set a zero if you want like that derivation path to be for all your receiving in- addresses and a one for your change addresses. Uh, that's just to separate separate out. So you don't have change and non-change keys mixed together. And then the last one's the index for the child keys. But you don't have to follow BIP44. You can do something else. Uh, Bitcoin Core, notably, does not follow BIP44. Okay. There is actually a security risk. BIP32 defines... There's also a thing called hardened derivation and unhardened derivation. So hardened derivation means that you can only derive the keys if you have the private key, the master private key. If you don't have the master private key, you're not going to get any child keys. Unhardened derivation means that you can derive the child keys from the master public key you can have the xpub and then you can derive child keys from that you don't need to have the private key so bip44 does a mix of this the first 3 the purpose account and that other thing are all hardened derivation and then the last one the change and and the index are unhardened so this lets like uh This is good for hardware wallets. So hardware wallet gives you an XPUB, and then you can load that into your software and now derive change and non-change and all the indexes from there without needing to know the private keys. Your software just knows the XPUB. That's great. But uh, the caveat is that if you have a child key derived with unhardened derivation and you have its private key and you know the parent XPUB, then you can also derive the parent private key.
0: Yep, big security risk, right? Which is a
1: huge problem.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, If
1: like you're storing your private keys in a way that they could be exported. So Bitcoin Core doesn't do this at all because we have dump priv key that just lets you export a private key. We don't want people to export a private key and then accidentally leak their parent private key and now someone can steal all their coins. So, <laughs> so Bitcoin Core uses entirely hardened derivation, at least right now.
0: I see. So let me just break that down again for the listeners. So listeners, check out the earlier episode with Michael Flaxman, where we explained a little bit of, I think Michael explained a little bit in that episode around this risk that if somebody gets your child's private key and they've got your master public key, and as Andrew, as you've just explained, that allows them to now basically re- Kind of back, they can back out the master private key, meaning they could just steal all your coins. Whereas, as Andrew, you're pointing out, if the if you're using hardened derivation, that's not possible, and that is the approach that Bitcoin Core, as a group, have taken as a way to be more conservative and more, I guess, security conscious. Whereas perhaps other Bitcoin developers out there in the wild have used this method for usability reasons, uh, I might say, to make it like easy for you to kind of hook up your hardware wallet and so on and generate addresses without having it connected in and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and I mean, having, the, having an XPUB that you can derive keys from is pretty useful. If you have your, I mean, just like on, on a normal software wallet, if you encrypt your private keys and you run out of uh, the pre-generated key pool, on Bitcoin Core, when that happens, you have to unlock your wallet, let it generate more keys before you can like get new addresses. But if you're using an XPUB, you can just keep getting more and more addresses even when your wallet's fully encrypted.
0: A quick word for a sponsor, Manning Publications. As you might know, they are the publisher of Grokking Bitcoin by Kalle Rosenbaum. And we've got a special offer for my listeners. 40% off any book or video product by using the code LAVERA. Part of being a Bitcoiner is about continual commitment to learning and improvement. And there are many titles such as Real World Cryptography, Linux in Action, Learn Git in a Month of Lunches. There's a title called Math for Programmers where you can learn 3D graphics, machine learning and simulations with Python. It's got over 200 exercises and mini projects with helpful graphics. The link for Manning is in the show notes or go to manning.com and use code LAVERA for 40% off. Back to the interview. And let's now talk a little bit. I've seen uh, some of the, I was obviously a bit of research for this episode. I was looking on Bitcoin Stack Exchange and I was looking at some of the answers you were giving and some of the answers Peter Vella gave as well. And uh, he was talking about this idea of output descriptors. And so, as I understand, part of it was, is there was a little bit of, I think, owing to that idea you were talking about there of not having like a standard way of doing these things. People came up with things called the, well, on top of the XPUB, they had the YPUB and the ZPUB to generate, say, SegWit or native SegWit um, addresses. Uh, but I think Peter was getting at this idea that output descriptors are a better less ambiguous way to describe those or distinguish uh, those different script types. Can you touch on that a little bit? So Electrum
1: and Trezor uh, developed or added to BIP32's XPUB, the YPUB and ZPUB. And they basically said that XPUB means that you're deriving that Uh, any pub keys you generate from the XPUB is going to be for a legacy non SegWit address. And then anything you derive, any pub keys you derive from a YPUB will be for p 2 sh trapped, I think. And ZPUB is BESH32. Uh, But this is kind of not what BIP32 was meant to do. XPUB was never really supposed to say that, it was never supposed to define an address type. It's just for an extended public key that you can derive public keys out of them, and use those public keys to do something else. You can put them in scripts, multisig, whatever. Uh, so Peter has been working on mini script and output descriptors. Uh, and so what output descriptors do are, is that they actually define a script that you want to use in a human readable way so if you wanted to use uh, public keys derived from an xpub in bech32 you could put that inside an output descriptor and then the descriptor would have like would have wpkh at the front of it and that would signal that you know everything inside this any public key uh, is should be used in a bech32 output and so that means any public key in derived from this xPub should have a best 32 uh, out address. and you can have different things in the front and that just indicates that uh, from from a same XPub you could have different kinds of addresses instead of so instead of having this thing where we're just defining new magic numbers and saying that this magic number means uh, public keys derived should be this address type, we now have some, Human readable way, and that's also uh, that says what address to use. And it's also flexible in the future if we define some new address type, we can just add a new thing to the descriptors without changing how keys are derived.
0: Got it. So, let me just quickly resummarize summarize that. So, essentially, it's saying instead of using like XPUB, YPUB, ZPUB, like we're going to run out of letters eventually, and it's probably not the best, uh, it's not the most unambiguous way, whereas a more kind of specific way to uh, talk about these is to have a specific format. And as I can see from Peter's answer on Stack Exchange, he lists out a couple of examples. So, it might say PKH. Uh, in brackets, xpub, dot, dot, uh, slash, and then that's where the 44, slash, zero, zero, etc., which is the derivation mm-hmm. path. And that might explain, okay, this is a bit44 address from a particular xpub, which is the pay to public key hash type. All right, And it might specify exactly what type. And so that way, when wallets and different devices are passing information to each other, they can say, hey, this is the output descriptor. This is the unambiguous way to derive the exact address, yeah. let's call it.
1: And it's also human-readable. Like, I can look at that and know exactly what it's saying. If I look at a YPUB, I didn't memorize what YPUB is, so I actually don't know what YPUB does. But I can see, you know, shwpkh, I know that's script hash with witness pubkey hash inside of it. Because these are common endings that we use in Bitcoin, like p2sh, p2wpkh. These are all things that we see working on wallets.
0: Right. And that's just referring to the different script types, just for the more beginner level listeners. Um, So let's bring it back to, you know, the PSBT, where it kind of aligns back into PSBT. As I understand, there are different roles within PSBT. You've got creator, updater, signer, finalizer, and extractor. Can you tell us a little bit about what each of those roles are?
1: Yeah. So ideally, these are supposed to be uh, self-explanatory so creator creates the transaction. It chooses what the it decides what the inputs and the outputs of the transaction are going to be, like uh you know the tx ids and the v out indexes that we want to spend, and which outputs and their, you know their scripts and the amounts that we want to create in this transaction, and it wraps that up in all of the psbt overhead basically, because um, uh. When the creator makes a PSPT, it's just going to be, you know, a raw transaction like you would see on the network without just without anything in the script sig, in the script sig, so there's no signatures, no, no input scripts or any of that. Uh, and that's just going to be wrapped with the PSPT header and a couple other bytes that are needed for PSPTs. And so the creator creates a transaction and sends it off to an updater. So the updater. Will inspect the transaction the creator made, and add information about uh, the inputs that are being spent. So it'll it'll add like the the UTXO. Uh, so for SegWit transactions or SegWit inputs, it'll take the just the output from the previous transaction itself. It'll just be the amount. And the script uh, for non-segwit, it has to include the entire previous transaction, and we need this because in order to sign, uh, we need to know what the script was, and the script of the output that we're spending, and we sometimes need to know the amount. Like segwit actually needs to know the amount um, for I don't remember reasons, but uh, and then. The updater will also add other information if it has it. Uh, If it knows that the output that's being spent was p2sh, it'll add the redeem script for the p2sh. If it knows that it was a segwit uh, witness script hash, then it'll add the witness script. If it knows any of the pub keys uh, in the output or in the redeem script or witness script, it'll add the pub keys and their derivation paths if it knows them. and then you know, for future, there are future things that it could also add. So the updater adds all this to the inputs. It also does it to the outputs. If it knows anything about the outputs, it'll add the redeem script and the public keys to the outputs. Um, but on, uh, And all this is really only if the updater knows it. And so once the updater is done, it might send it off to another updater who will add all the information that it knows, or it'll send it off to a signer. The signer will look at the transaction and because the updater had added the UTXO and the scripts, the signer can be completely offline. It doesn't it doesn't need to know anything about the blockchain. It doesn't need to be connected to the internet. You know, It could be a hardware wallet or it could be a computer locked in the safe 50 feet underground. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it can be completely air-gapped and offline. Uh, and this is like really what PSBT was meant to do. So the signer can now look at the transaction. It can see, you know, if it needs to sign, say, input zero, it looks at the data that the updater added to input zero and it sees there's a UTXO. So now it knows the output script, which it needs to sign for for signing usually. Uh, and there's a redeem script, it now knows the redeem script. There's witness script, it also knows the witness script. And then the pub keys are also listed there. So it can go generate, the private keys, if asked, or just pull up the private keys and it knows everything that it needs to do with the sign. So it'll, you know, check the, check the transaction, make sure that the user likes it. Like it'll look at the, cause we have all the UTXOs. We can now, we know what the transaction fee is going to be, which is useful. Like the user can be like, Oh, that's a, that transaction fee is too high. I'm not going to sign this transaction. I want a lower transaction fee or something like that. Or maybe you know transaction is too low. It's never going to get accepted. So the signer, you know, makes sure is that the user likes the transaction, that the money is going where it's supposed to go, uh, the user is receiving their change if they are supposed to get change, and the fee is correct. And then it makes a signature, attaches it to the PSPT and does that for every input that it can sign for. So once the signer is done, you know, it can send it to another signer if. Someone else is involved, or it can send it to a finalizer, and the finalizer does uh, it does a conversion. So the the PSBT itself just has a bunch of records in it, but in a final transaction, you don't have just a bunch of records. You have a script in the input, so the finalizer produces that script. It you know it takes the signatures the signers created, it takes the scripts that are already there and it combines them all together in order to create uh, the script sig or the script witness and sticks that back into the psbt so that later these can be put together with the original unsigned transaction to be broadcast and so that last step is what the extractor does it takes all the script sigs and script witnesses the finalizer created sticks them into the unsigned transaction that's at the top of the PSPT and sends it off to the network. There's actually one more role and that's the combiner. Uh, So in, in between updater signer finalizer, you can also send it off to a combiner, which will just take multiple PSPTs that have different data in the input and output and just combine them all. It throws all the records together as long as the global Unsigned transaction is still the same.
0: Ah, okay, right. One thing it might be good to just talk through an example flow of a PSBT. Then, so let's say just a single signature PSBT, and you've got an offline wallet, like a hardware wallet, and a watching only wallet. Could you just talk through what is the flow there? Like, would you, you would you create the transaction using Bitcoin Core or like how, how would you, is this like a so, CLI thing? Actually, or I'll, we...
1: I'll go through an example. Like like this is how uh, I use hardware wallets now with Core. <laughs> so Bitcoin Core acts as the creator. Uh, so the hardware wallet is the signer and Bitcoin Core is everything else. So first I would use Bitcoin Core as the creator and create a transaction. I choose my inputs, choose my outputs and produce a PSPT. That's what the creator does. then Bitcoin Core will take that and will update it. It will pull from its blockchain, from its access to the UTXO set and the blockchain and fill in all of the uh, UTXO information for all the inputs that I've chosen. Uh, And then it'll also add from the wallet, the pub key information and the redeem script and witness script. And this is actually all done together as one command of wallet-create-funded PSPT. It just does everything in the same time. Uh, So all you have to do as a user is say which inputs and which outputs. And maybe not even the inputs, because it will do coin selection for you if you don't give enough money. Um, So it makes this PSPT with all the updated information. I copy that, take that to HWI, and just give it the sign TX command and the PSPT, Uh, click all the buttons on my hardware wallet that says like, do you, are you sure you want to send to this address with this amount? Is the transaction fee correct? You know, click through all the buttons. If I like the transaction and nothing had changed it. And HWI gives me another PSPT that has all the signatures in it now. And now I take this back to Bitcoin Core, what I do, Finalize PSBT, and this will this is the finalizer step. It makes all the script sigs and the script witnesses, and uh, it's also the extractor. If Bitcoin Core finds that uh, all the script sigs and all the script witnesses are there, and when it puts it into the transaction, the transaction is valid, it gives me the final transaction that I can send to the network. So I can copy that and go to send raw transaction and broadcast it. So right now, this is actually how you use HWI with core because we haven't fully integrated it yet. And it's just a command line thing, but it's basically like uh, four commands, I think. Yeah, so it's wallet, wallet create funded PSPT, then sign TX, then finalize PSPT and send raw transaction.
0: Got it. And I suppose it's the hope then, so right now it is all CLI, character interface. Is there a hope that, or a plan that this would then become a GUI?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, the hope is that it'll all happen in the background. So if I, on the CLI, if I just did send to address and I had a hardware wallet that was plugged in, the thing would show up on my hardware wallet and I could click all the buttons there and then it would magically all happen in the background with just one command. And then same thing for the GUI, when you click send, uh your hardware is plugged in a thing will show up and then it just magically all happens in the background so that's (laughs) what we're that's what we're working towards not quite there yet
0: yeah right and i suppose the other aspect to layer on there is multiple devices and also air gapping so can we talk to some of that so maybe uh let's talk to the air gapping part of it first so let's say you wanted to export the unsigned transaction onto a micro sd card or ideally a qr code could you talk to that process a little bit and what that might look like
1: uh yeah so the the transaction is uh just the base 64 string or the psbt and that contains all the psbt information sometimes it's also really big but you just copy the string you could put it like in a text file or uh you could QR encode it, but QR, uh, QR encoders have a size limit, so you might run into problems there. Um, but it's just a string, you know. Put in a text file, something like that. Uh, put on a flash drive, microSD, whatever. Take it out to your second computer or other device that has the private keys, and give it the string back. You know, if that's QR codes, yeah, it'll just scan the QR codes, and the string will be there or you just copied it off your text file from the flash drive. And then you do, do the signing off the, from the PSPT there.
0: Great. And let's talk now about, so talking through that example, but in this case, let's talk about multi-signature. So let's say you've got a two of three hardware wallets set up or something like that. And you know basically we do that same PSPT process as you spoke about. Would the main change be that instead now there would just be two signers instead of one? Is that the main change?
1: Yep, pretty much.
0: Got it, yeah.
1: you There could be two updaters also. You could have a, you know, if... Never mind. Actually, that's a bad example. That works for coin joins, not multisig. Oh, uh, um, okay,
0: yeah. That's yeah. another good example of PSB too as in, well. In
1: coin joins, you would have multiple updaters and everyone would update their own transaction and it would all be combined before they all sign it again. But in... Uh, for multisig, you, you'd probably have like something where one wall one person, has their wallet set up to be watching for all the transactions, and they act as the creator and updater, and they send out the PSBT to the other signers, and the other signers, without having to be watching that multisig um, address, or even like, like they or even have that multisig address in their wallet. They can just sign the psbt and send it back to uh, the creator uh and it's i mean the flow is pretty much the same as the air gap one except instead of giving it to your second computer you're just giving it to another person that's about it uh coin joins are also pretty similar
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I guess obviously there's so many different combinations, but I'm just trying to, in some sense, talk about some of the key ones that people might use or they might think about. And I guess the key scenarios here people would be thinking about are multi-signature of their own coins, or maybe in a corporate context, they might want to use it as a control system, right? They might want to say have a three or five and... um, they might want to make it so that the CFO and the head of finance have a key each or something like that. And, you know, they might want to split the controls up that way and use the PSBT as a way to help pass around this uh, uncompleted transaction until it's ready to be signed and fully broadcast out Mm -hmm. to the network.
1: Yeah. And and the the thing with all these roles and the, the way that PSBT is designed is that for all these cases, it's, almost the same workflow. It's just passing it from one person to the other and they're doing almost the exact same thing as if it was just their own money and their own transaction because the software is supposed to handle everything in the background.
0: Yeah and now let's talk a little bit about some of the problems that we have seen in terms of making multi-signature work nicely and even for you know just hardware devices as well. So there is one of the problems or one attack that uh, Michael Flaxman mentioned in my previous interview, which was this idea that at the time you are signing on your hardware device, you, and you're doing say a multi-signature transaction, you may not be aware of if your device is signing against your own other devices. So a quick example might be in a two of three multi-signature setup, you might be faced with the decision to hit accept or reject on your physical device. But you might not know that unbeknownst to you, that transaction might actually, the other co might be your enemy, right? A hacker rather than your own uh, multi-sig hardware wallets. Yeah. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that problem? So
1: PSPT has, uh, in the outputs, you can also include the scripts, the redeem script and the witness script. So Ideally, you would also just look at that and see that, you know, these are the public keys that you're expecting to see and everything's good. Um, There is, but there is a problem with like XPUBs uh, when you're doing a multi-sig where every address is new because you're deriving new addresses from XPUBs that people have provided. And this was the, proposed extension that we added recently to PSPT uh, was that we would include an XPUB at the top of the PSPT. And then when you see a public key, you can go and you can try to derive that public key from XPUB in the PSPT. And now you will know whether uh, the it's the same, that XPUB is, was used to drive that public key or not. And you can see who, which xpubs are contributing to the outputs? Uh, but the the other problem is actually with change detection. Um, so you know most users don't actually really know about change, and they get scared when they see it. They because they see their bitcoins moving to some other address, uh, and if they see this change address being displayed to them by their hardware wallet, they probably won't know what it is, or uh, and might just reject the transaction even though it's perfectly safe. So the, the problem with change is that if we're not showing the address to the user for them to verify themselves that this is correct, then the hardware wallet needs to do this check itself uh, and decide whether to hide it or to show it. The, the hardware wallet has to decide if it's safe for the user. And so that's actually, that was the primary motive, primary motivation for having the XPUB in uh, the PSPT. So the hardware wallet can say uh, I've signed this input that's multi-sig and the three pub, the pub keys in this input were derived from these XPUBs. Now, when I go to the outputs and I see, okay, this output has pub keys that are derived from those same XPUBs. So, and it has the same threshold number. So now I can assume that this is the same, this is our change because we have the same people involved and the same number of people need to sign it. So this is reasonably change. And that's how we can, if one of the signers had replaced it, then this wouldn't hold true. And we decide that this is not change. We're going to tell the user that this is an output instead of hiding it away as change.
0: Right. So, let me just summarize that again for the listeners. That might be a bit technical. I'm not sure I fully grasped it myself, but but I'm going to try. Um, so, the when every, tra- when every transaction is crafted, think of it like your UTXO is being kind of melted down and recast. And part of that is you're receiving back some as change. And what you're talking about there is that idea that your hardware wallet has to make that call for the user because many users don't understand that concept themselves. And so, what you're saying is that if by using by seeing what are the xpubs going into this transaction we could try to figure out if this is change or not and then that's when it would be flagged to the user whether so that the user can know at the time that they're pressing yes or no on their hardware wallet that ah uh, yes this is actually this is either coming back to me as change because it's my own money or it's actually a payment to somebody else somebody mm-hmm. else is going to get the output Is that yeah. is that right
1: yes yeah. And um, this also happens to only really matter if the threshold, like the number of signers, the number of people that have to sign in this multisig, is less than uh, is less than or equal to half of the total number of people in the transaction. So, like, if I have, if you have a two of four, this would be a problem. But if you had a three of four, it actually isn't really that big of a problem and that's because you can actually have a like a, a signer policy of you know if a trend uh, an output is changed, if my uh if one of my keys is in it i don't really care about who else is signing it but as long as my key is there and the threshold is uh I don't think the threshold actually matters that much. Because as long as I'm there and I have control, like I would be able to sign this in the future. Then, from that standpoint, it's a safe. If so, if you had like a three of four and someone had replaced one of the keys with a second one of their own, and all three signers are following the same policy, the third guy. Let me think. Yeah. So the third guy would be uh, the guy whose key got replaced would not see his key in there. And so now he knows that this has not changed. And so he would be the one that refuses to sign. And now the transaction won't go through because th- that guy didn't sign. But if uh, this was, if it was a two of four instead, then I could sign seeing my key there and the attacker could sign and he's just replaced one of the other keys but they're not involved anymore it's just going to be me and him and I've unknowingly sent away coins to an attacker so this ah. this xpub thing really only matters when the uh the threshold is less than or equal to half of the number of signers
0: Oh, yeah. Okay, I get you. Yeah, because basically it depends on how the attacker tries to go about that attack yeah. and which keys they switch out and what is the quorum required to make it happen. I yeah. suppose part of it, though, is most of the time when people talk about multisig, they're usually doing a setup where it's majority, right? It's two of yeah. three, it's three of five, four of seven, etc.
1: Yeah, so usually for most multisigs, this probably isn't even needed. Like, You can just go by this selfish... uh policy that i've described um <laughs> it's yeah uh, when, when i was talking to peter about this he was like yeah you can do this like if you just act really selfishly in this way it doesn't matter <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the lesson is act selfishly when it comes to multi-sig guys <laughs> <laughs> uh so i guess let's talk a little bit about what the gold standard or what we might call now the bitcoin standard look looks like as far as um Kind of hardware wallets and how they interact with, you know, so the, I guess the gold standard or Bitcoin standard might be the hardware wallets are all air gapped. They're all doing something ideally QR code and, and a multi signature and it's all in a nice, easy to use GUI. Is that kind of roughly what, would that sound roughly right?
1: I, I guess sounds rather, uh, impossible
0: <laughs> <laughs> utopian if you will <laughs> yeah but maybe something um a little simpler can be done like even if it's three or five and say you know you're using electrum and it's got some kind of way to interact with hwi so can we talk a little bit about that like how do how, how is the intended model going to be with hwi and some of these other pieces of software so h so electrum for example
1: Yeah. So. HWI um, was really written in with the intended goal of being for Bitcoin Core and being used as a, a external binary that you can call. Uh, so any software that can run another program, which is actually all of them because all languages have some way to do this, uh, could use HWI to interact with hardware wallets. For example, Wasabi was actually the first project to, I think they're also the only project to actually integrate HWI into their software. So Wasabi supports hardware wallets now because they call HWI, which is great. Also found a billion bugs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For something like Electrum, Electrum could actually do it differently because HWI is also written in Python. Electrum is written in Python too. So there is like a a library that is provided with HWI uh, that Electrum could use instead of executing it as um, a separate program. Uh, But I'm not sure that they're going to do that. I highly doubt they would because they already have all the hard they have hardware wallets integrated in already and into their plugins thing. And they're all pretty well built.
0: Yeah, uh, I see. But I suppose if you can't get that, could it at least get to a point where, say, you might interact using the PSBT? So, for example, I might have generated, I might have created that transaction using Bitcoin Core HWI and created a PSBT and then handed that to Electrum because Electrum have might have, my Electrum might have one of the keys and it might sign that PSBT. Yeah. So the
1: the uh utopian goal is that all clients and hardware wallets use PSBT. So so Electrum, I would like them to use PSBT, and I think they have an open issue or pull request to implement it, but they haven't done that yet, as far as I know. But it'd be great if. Electrum supported PSPT and Armory and, I don't know, blockchain.info, <laughs> or <laughs> or like, what else is there, green address? Uh, it'd be great if they all supported PSPT because then we can just pass, if I have to work with someone doing a multisig or coin join with another wallet, we can use PSPT. Or if I'm doing like my own multisig and using different wallets to avoid one having a critical vulnerability. Uh, it'd be great to just have this one thing. I can just pass each one and not have to worry about incompatibilities. And then if hardware wallets also give a PSBT to the hardware wallet instead of parsing the PSBT, breaking down what it needs and converting that into the special formats for hardware wallet for each different hardware wallet. So like right now, HWI has to, not only uh, connect to the hardware wallet and send things to it over USB, but it also has to take a PSPT, break it apart and convert it into the messages that the hardware wallets are expecting. If I can just have HWI pass along the PSPT as one data blob, that'd be great. It's so much less work. And I like how the cold card did that because cold card uses PSPT. So, cold card, the cold card implementation in HWI is like 20 lines. It's just send over the thing we got over the command line.
0: Do you have any thoughts just generally on hardware wallets and how they are compatibility with HWI and PSBT? What are your thoughts there out of the common hardware wallets?
1: In, In working on HWI, I found that everyone does everything slightly differently in an it's just so slightly different that they're almost entirely incompatible with each other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it also makes this, the, the model that we're trying to build with Core and HWI for hardware wallets actually makes that super, kind of difficult to, to work with. So for example, pin entry. On a ledger, you can enter the pin on the device itself, right? And if you have a Trezor T. You can do the same thing, but if you have a treasure one, you can't. You have to plug it into your computer, and then type in the pin on the computer, uh, the scrambled pin, and send it to the treasure. But HWI isn't really designed to do that. Uh, we don't. We want HWI to be just like I call HWI. It doesn't have to save any state. It doesn't have to save anything, remember anything. And just given the command line parameters, it knows which device to talk to and what to send to it. But if I have to now deal with, oh, when I send this command to the treasure, it's going to send something back to me and expect me to send something back to it in the same like session, which is really annoying to work with because... Hwi is stateless. It doesn't remember that the last time you called Hwi, there was uh, the the treasure wanted a pin, and now I I've figured out a workaround for it, but it's still like I don't like it. <laughs> um, and it would be nice if if treasure let you enter the pin on the device. Uh, I believe there is an open issue for that. And same thing with the pass password. Uh, All the devices except the Trezor (laughs) have you enter the password on the device. Uh, Trezor 1 lets you do that. And Ledger, if you can find the setting for password, lets you have the password on the device. But Trezor, same thing, Trezor 1, same thing with the pin. You have to, it it calls back to the, the computer, user has to enter their password, and it sends it to the device. And this is kind of annoying. You know, same thing with a PIN, but at least um, with the password, I can prompt the user up front and be like, give me your password in the command line. And so when the treasure asks for it, I can give it what you entered as your password in the command line. I can't do that for the PIN because the PIN is a scrambled thing that the user reads off their display. And uh, the digital bit box also has that issue with the password. But I just found that this is that there's just these different ways that the hardware wallets go about getting like pins and passwords from the user that make trying to do them all in one thing with the same unified API kind of difficult.
0: Yeah, I see. I can understand there's a lot of difficulty there trying to get them all to work together. I suppose my next question would be, if you're, a listener right now, and you're thinking, okay, I want to get multi-signature with you know different devices, and I want it to be easy in the future. What devices would sort of make sense for that? So, for example, uh, as I understand you, then it makes more sense to have the Trezor Model T device rather than the Trezor One if you want that to be part of your multi-sig stack, because in the future that might be easier to kind of make it work with the HWI and the PSBT because you yeah. can enter the pin on the device.
1: Also, I've had I've considered dropping the Trezor One from HWI. Right, so maybe I don't know. Um, so I think right now the so Ledger is is actually supports multisig really well, but it's if you consider the discussion we had earlier about change, it actually might not be safe there. Uh, you have to be careful. Um, I believe Cold Card probably does it the best with registering the multisig with the device itself. Uh, in order to use multisig on it, you have to register the xpubs that are going to be in the multisig, and it'll store those locally. And then, uh, I guess, yeah, Treasure T, it it also, I believe, has the same issues with change, with um, as the ledger. But I haven't. Oh really?
0: I didn't know that. Because
1: they, they none of them, none of them actually do the change thing. I think. Because this is a new development, like there's a new discussion. Uh, now I can't actually remember what the Trezor does for multisig. And there was one thing that I did for multisig and HWI that is not the greatest thing, and, and for supporting coin joins.
0: Summarizing that, then, it's kind of like if you look at Cold Card, Trezor Model T, and potentially Ledger, but the change address problem is still there with Ledger and potentially yeah, with Model I mean, t
1: The change address problem, I think, is always going to be an issue with hardware wallets, and just change detection in general is hard. For some some devices, I think you could lie to it, and it just wouldn't check. <laughs> you could say like, "This address has changed," but you know, maybe it's not actually changed. Uh, and it wouldn't really know. But, yeah, but for for the most part, they actually do handle that well uh, because they require you to send the derivation path, and then it'll try to derive that address from the derivation path and see if it matches. That's how they detect change now. But multisig change is very different. And then it gets more complicated with like complicated scripts. Going back to the output descriptors thing, what's going to be expanding upon that is mini script, which lets you have arbitrary scripts. So if you have an arbitrary script, it might be harder to determine what's changed, what's not changed.
0: Drawing it to a close, then where does HWI go from here? And what further development work is most needed for HWI? So right
1: now, it's actually in a pretty
0: done state uh it's
1: mostly just bug fixes integration problem bugs that that crop up and like some new features maybe um so like what i was working on earlier today was adding an update firmware command uh to it which every device also has its own way of updating firmware which was really annoying um so the I was adding this update firmware. Like that'll be something new, but it's you know, it kind of isn't really needed in signing or anything else. It's just kind of like nice to have. So for the most part, HWI is just in pretty much bug fix mode. Uh yeah. Wasabi's been reporting a bunch of bugs when they do integration. Like, all right, I'll well fix those, but there isn't a lot of new functionality to add, nothing that really needs to be done with it. Everything else that we're doing with HWI is actually on the software side, like the uh, the wallet side with Bitcoin Core, and that's what a lot of my focus has been was is getting Bitcoin Core ready to be able to interact with HWI uh, seamlessly.
0: So, in terms of that, then making Bitcoin Core ready to interact with HWI, what's required?
1: Uh, a lot. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, recently I've been working on this, uh, wallet refactor, and that's because we need to refactor the wallet in order for HWI to work right now, the wallet is the wallet is kind of a monolith. It has everything in it, like key generation, address generation, transaction tracking, watch only things. Like anything, wallet is inside uh, a class called C Wallet, and it's gigantic. So we're trying to separate this out and move key generation into its own thing. And and C Wallet will now call this the thing for key generation. Uh, and the idea is by separating this, we can actually just define different classes of key generation types. Like we can have keys being generated from the old method of just randomly generating keys. Or we have another class that says keys are generated uh, from output descriptors, which is actually the main thing I was trying to get this key generation with output descriptors. Or we can say, uh, you know, if you have this class, keys are generated from a hardware wallet. And this class now has all the things to interact with a hardware wallet. So C wallet itself doesn't need to know about the hardware wallet. It doesn't need to store any information about hardware wallets. It just knows that if it calls this variable in memory, that thing will do some magic in the background and give it an address or a key. And that thing in the background might might be calling out to HWI and getting stuff from hardware wallet instead. So that's... a. Uh, that's kind of what I've been working on to prepare Bitcoin Core to do a uh, hardware wallet stuff. And then Shores, uh, Shores Provost has been working on the GUI and the actual integration of HWI into Core. He's been building on top of the PRs that I've created um, to add stuff to the GUI, add stuff to the command line that will do the, the ideal future of you know, send to address and everything just happens in the background.
0: The promised land.
1: Yeah. It's it's still a long way off, I think. We're uh, like the, the PR that I created to do this separation is like plus 4,000 lines of code <laughs> and people have to review this. It's going to take a while to review. So we probably won't see hardware wallets for another two or three major versions of bitcoin core
0: right so uh that's like six monthly releases right
1: yeah so uh let's see 0.19 will be out in like september october i think maybe november and then you know six months from that march april ish so like by this time next year maybe we'll have hardware wallets and core
0: Right. Uh, And I suppose in your own experience, have you done much multi-signature work outside of Bitcoin Core or have you mostly just used character uh, command line interface to do that sort of thing within Bitcoin Core?
1: Uh, I've pretty much only done command line within Bitcoin Core. I did attempt to do multi-sig hardware wallet stuff, multi-sig with multiple hardware wallets, and that failed miserably. It was just too difficult
0: to use. (laughs) (laughs) That was with Bitcoin Core, yeah?
1: Yeah, it was with Bitcoin Core and HWI. And then I also had a a wrapper script around that. But I guess it it might be possible now. At the time I was doing it, Bitcoin Core did not support... You know, you can't have multi-sig addresses from Bitcoin Core. It won't give you them. Uh, With descriptor wallets and the refactor I'm working on, it will actually be able to do this. So... It might be better soon. But when I was working on this uh, side thing with multisig, it didn't work. I had to store um, addresses uh, by myself. And then, like, it had to remember what was used, what was not used. And it was just generally uh, a pain to use. And it didn't actually work. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's been the extent of my multisig experimentation with hardware wallets
0: yeah no well, it's good to good to hear how you're uh going with it and potentially this will become easier over time well i think it will uh it's just a matter of you yeah, know the, the right pieces being put together uh, i suppose that's all is there anything else you wanted to cover today andrew
1: um no i don't think so
0: okay well that's great so look uh, let make sure you let my listeners know where can they find you where can they follow you online
1: yeah, so my my handle literally everywhere is achow101, 101, achow101. 101. Uh, you can find me Twitter, GitHub, Bitcoin Stack Exchange. What else? Uh, Bitcoin Talk. Uh, occasionally, I will stream coding. Actually, I don't know how long I'll keep that up. I started doing it last week. Uh, so I'll be. I, you can also find me on Twitch, achow101. Uh, yeah, but. Pretty much anywhere you see hi 101 it's probably me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I'll put the links in the description as well so the yeah, listeners can you. find you there. Well, look, thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a really educational discussion for me and for my listeners. So uh, thank you for the time today. Thanks for having me. So what did you think of that? Did you already know about derivation paths and hardware wallet interface and PSBTs? I thought it was pretty cool. Definitely a lot to learn there, though, and it's quite technical material. So I've put some links in the show notes just for you guys to do a bit of research on your own as well, if you'd like to read a bit further into it. You can get the show notes on my website, stefanlevera.com. You can subscribe there, and also you can share the episodes with your friends and help them learn also. Any feedback for me, you can DM me on Twitter, at stefanlevera, or email me, stefanlevera at pm.me. That's it from me, guys, and I will see you in the Citadels.